Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Hello everyone and welcome to Dig Life Deep, the show formerly known as Life on Planet Earth. We have a fantastic guest coming up. He is Philip Sharp. Phil Sharp has served for 20 years in the US Army Infantry, during which he graduated from Ranger School, completed 22 parachute jumps and served as a drill sergeant. He has worked in a variety of locations to include South Korea and the jungles of Panama. He deployed to Iraq three separate times from 2003 until 2010. Phil grew up in West Virginia, moved with his family to Florida on occasions, but he is a hometown boy from West Virginia. Today he lives in North Carolina where he is a pastor and he hosts the show Rage of the Age. He is my guest coming up in a wee moment. He is interesting, insightful. You might say Phil has his finger on the pulse of what's going on in what is sometimes known in media circles as flyover country, parts of America which tend to be overlooked, neglected or maybe misunderstood. He has a lot to say about the economy, politics and where this nation is headed and how we may come together, at least he'll provide some clues as to that. He has a lot of opinions and he has some views, if you want to call them that, on Donald Trump, which you will want to listen to. I think there's a growing momentum in the country for not politics as usual. I don't, I mean, Trump might be, depending on who runs against him and how that pans out, if he doesn't gain the traction, there's still that attitude, I think, amongst a lot of conservatives that, look, we're not going to settle for people who just get elected and sit there and do nothing anymore. We want something done. Trump showed it could be done. So y'all get to work. We have a lot of politicians who look good and talk good, but their actions are horrible. Now, this guy's backwards. His, 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 his looks and his, and his speaking is like can put people off, but look what he does. It, it's almost like a reversal. Of course, other politicians hate that. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. And that was Phil Sharp, host of the podcast Rage of the Age. He's a pastor in North Carolina. And as he says in his bio notes, I'm a progressive person, but I enjoy the conversations going on here on Rage of the Age. The logical and insightful approach taken on these issues, sometimes which I disagree with, by the way, is both respectful and a relevant point of view. They are the words of Phil Sharp, and he's my guest coming up in a wee moment. I first want to tell you about a great new podcast I'm hosting. It's called Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. We cover all things money and markets. In our latest episode, we take a deep dive into the housing crisis in America and look closely at the issues Dick Beauvais has identified, in particular, the mess at the housing agencies known as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Go check it out on Apple and all the platforms out there. The show is called Odeon Capital Conversations, and I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Philip Sharp, Phil Sharp, if you will, and he is the host of Rage of the Age. He is a pastor in North Carolina, and he has a fantastic and 
checkered but brilliant background 20 years in the u.s army infantry and a lot of service a lot of insights he is going to well maybe blow your socks off um you can make up your own mind about where phil goes in this conversation and i want to have somebody who might have opposite opinions in a coming episode but for now make up your mind on what phil is going to tell us i'm your host john aiden byrne philip sharp welcome to my show you know i'm going to begin by saying you had me on your show recently you graciously invited me on i had fun during that interview and so this is not one of those silly awkward quid pro quos halfway through the interview my light bulbs went off up in the brain i said god i gotta ask philip onto my show you have a lot to say you have a fascinating story you have incredible background and we're going to get to all of that in a moment right now you describe yourself as a pastor but you had a former life as well you're i guess a man of god you believe in in God, you're a Christian. You came to that late in life. You served in the military. You grew up in West Virginia, coal mining country. It's declining, we know, a little bit, maybe a big bit. And that's Joe Manchin's home state. And we could get into that. And you're now living in sunny North Carolina. I say sunny because in <laughs> New York and New Jersey, all I'm looking uh, at yeah. right now is <laughs> foots and foots of snow. I've been shoveling my son, plowing out, and the fire is roaring upstairs, although it's a beautiful. Our house is heated up with gas. I keep mentioning this fire that we light in our home, I guess just to create some kind of an atmosphere, you know, and it, it helps. Yes. Yeah, an ambiance. So, <laughs> Philip, welcome to my show. Tell us about yourself. Well, John, first off, it, it was a blast having you on on uh, Raids of the Age. You, you were a great interview talking with you. You're an interesting man. I mean, don't <laughs> pawn that off on me. You're an interesting man. Oh, you, you, uh, you flatter me. You flatter yeah. me. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, you can have it. And uh, <laughs> and and it's a pleasure to be invited here uh, to your program. Just the same. Um, <laughs> well, my question was, I guess I'm listening. People are listening to your accent now. They realize you're not from the New York, New Jersey mm. region. You grew up in West Virginia, and now you live in North Carolina. Uh, my question really is, give us your backstory and bring us to how you became a pastor in your local community. Being a pastor is something I would have never told you most of my life that that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> that was yeah. probably the last thing on my mind that was ever going to happen. Uh, it wasn't my goal. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a drive. Nothing. It just came along. I wanted to be in the military since I was small. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did. I joined the Army uh, in 1990, uh, served in the infantry for uh, 20 years, been to Iraq uh, three times and numerous other uh, locations. Uh, different types of uh, schools and services that I've done while in the service. Uh, most of it was enjoyable and I loved it. Um, uh, towards the end, the, the bureaucracy and and just the <laughs> some of the inefficiencies in the direction it was going really began to irritate me, but uh, I would not trade that in again. I, I, I'm proud of my service and, and what was done, and I, I especially miss the people that I uh, had served with. Uh, I, re I retired in 2012. And I want to go back home to West Virginia and just run a, a small farm and Lord willing, just live in peace the rest of my yeah. life. Yeah. Um, but uh, that just did not pan out. Uh, breaking of equipment, uh, bad weather. Uh, my back had been thrown out uh, in the service, which inhibited a lot of what I could do physically now. Uh, so that dream just did not really take off. Uh, Long story short, it took me 10 years to study to be a pastor. Not <laughs> That's not the normal route. It's just with each move, uh, doing the different states in the military, <laughs> they'd lose my paperwork. I'd have to retake the test again. <laughs> this crazy. There goes the inefficiencies. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, made, it made me think, well, Lord, maybe this ain't what you want me to do. And, you know, and, and in a way I was kind of okay with that. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, it, but it ended up taking place anyway. And, uh, I've been an, uh, a pastor here in North Carolina, uh, for, uh, coming on about four years now. You have your own church. Yes. I, I pastor the warranted church of God. 
You have a congregation, you're in charge, you administer it. How many people attend? Ooh, it, it, it very, we're probably like in the thirties right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been up to about 68 at one time. I showed up as a little less than that. Uh, it, it fluctuates, especially with the COVID it's been, it's been up and down quite a bit. Um, and that's about what we're running right now. Is it a fundamental evangelical style church? Uh, well, I guess it depends on how one wants to use the word evangelical now anymore. It's it's one of those abused terms like most church words. Yeah. Um, but it's it's uh, I would say it's theologically conservative. Uh, and one of the distinctiveness of the Church of God is, is it still has the belief in the charismatic gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. We don't believe in secessionists like it ended after the apostles. Uh, so we believe that a miracle can happen. We can pray for it. We can ask for it. That, that God can heal now and, and uh, uh, that they're still speaking in tongues, there's prophecies and things like this. Um, but in no case is that, of course, to contradict scripture and, it, you know, everything must still be in line. You can't just do what you want sort of thing. Yeah. It, it tends to be a very conservative type of church with, with, that, with those exceptions. I'm a Roman Catholic, and uh, I always kind of have to step back a little bit when they use the word Roman, but there's a reason why they call it Roman Catholic and we're you know affiliated to, to Rome, not not Eastern Orthodox. So it sounds like we may have something here in common. Um do you have Eucharistic celebration? Do you believe in the saints? Do you believe in the Blessed Mother? Joseph, obviously you do the the birth of Jesus you believe in. I mean I I believe that Mary existed and was the mother of God, you know, being Jesus Christ. And I believe in, you know, Joseph being <laughs> her husband, yeah. having not conceived though, it was, he, uh, she, Jesus was conceived by the Holy spirit. Um, whatever he did <laughs> to, to yeah. I, we don't pray to saints or where they're for intercessions. Like you that. don't pray to no, saints for intercession. No, the only, the only intercession we believe in is, uh, through Jesus Christ. Uh, Do you have Eucharist? Oh yes. We have a uh, communion. Uh, it's not like every, every time we gather though, which seems to be the case for many, uh, liturgic, uh, churches. Uh, we do it once a month here, and that's because I instituted it, <laughs> which I find disturb. I mean, it's something that should be more common, I think, because of what it celebrates, the bo- uh, body and blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, the promise of his return. In, in the Catholic Church, we have um, the concept of transubstantiation yes. during the celebration of the Eucharist. That's the actual real body and blood. Um mm-hmm. I, statistics tell us, I don't know whether I believe this, baffling a bit, uh, not all Catholics believe that, maybe at least half of them don't. That's one statistic mm. I said. What's mm. your take on it? Uh, I don't know if it's literally the body and blood, but I believe, I'm probably closer to Luther on this, consubstantiation, yeah. that, that it's the Holy Spirit's with it, and it's a holy thing. It's nothing that you treat as common or profane. It's not just bread or mm. Because it's uh, you know when Paul talks about it in uh, in, in Corinthians to the Corinthians he's like look some of you all have fell asleep meaning you died or got sick because you mistreated the Lord's Supper yeah and that's because it's a holy it's like grabbing the ark and you're not supposed to it, it's sort of like to me that's what it is it's a it's a holy thing uh, and you have to treat it accordingly that is just a piece of bread and something to drink and it represents this. It's a little bit more than that, but I don't I don't think it's the literal body and blood of Christ per se. Up to the early, very early 60s in the Catholic Church, it was celebrated in Latin, of course, and mm-hmm. then we went to the vernacular. Yes. And of course, there's a controversy over that at the moment. There's a lot of Latin traditionalists who really devoutly attach to the Latin rite and Got some of them maybe in a bit of trouble or they're upset with Pope Francis because he's trying to, he comes across as trying to dial that down a little bit. I presume your services are in English. They are, well, they're in whatever language of yeah. the people attending uh, the primary language. Uh, I hope to be starting a Spanish service here within our building soon to reach the Spanish community around us. So that would, of course, be conducted in Spanish. Uh, there's there's a church in Raleigh, I believe, that uh, is Chinese because <laughs> that's their language. And, that you know, and they have a lot of immigrants who have uh, congregated there. So they had formed a church where their language they use for service is Chinese. So it'd be, um, you know, the language of those who uh, what mostly people understand. 
Did you create this church yourself? You named it yourself, or is it part of an affiliated group? It's part of a it's part of the Church of God International, which is an international known. It has churches all over the world. Started in um, North Carolina uh, as like a small, very small group, originally known as a Christian Union um, in the late 1800s, and it was basically uh, it persecuted by other churches <laughs> uh, for for coming about with what they were doing, and eventually grew into a very big. Uh, it's a penalty. Pentecostal uh, style type church. Uh, that's its origins. And of course, at the time, that was not well received by many denominations. Um, but it has grown since into international church. Uh, the church I'm at, I, I believe, was started first in 1933. And I'm, I'm one of a long line of pastors who've uh, had the privilege to serve here. We share a lot in common, all of these Christian churches. By and large, there are some exceptions. There could be some controversial churches in the Christian a sphere that I'm not aware of, but we do good works. We do charity. We help people. We're supposed to love our neighbors. Um, we're supposed to love our country. Um, we're not supposed to gossip about our neighbors. We're supposed to love our families. We're supposed to come together. Oh yeah, and um, th- that's the that's the thing. That's something we're supposed to talk about on your show today. Is uh, the, these what you you asked me in an, e- an email that was. Uh, you stumped me at first because, like, you know, who anyone who claims to know this answer right off the bat is lying, in my opinion. <laughs> this is what, it's a tough one for yeah, you, Phil. Yeah, it's like, you know, well, what's the one thing that's wrong with our with America? I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> one. <laughs> you know, what's that? What's the one thread that you grabbed that pulls it all apart? I had to really think about it. Uh, <laughs> but you came back with an answer. Yeah, it's 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 to me, it's it's mainly that element of the Christian influence on the nation has eroded over the years and i believe we're seeing some of the side effects of it that despite the various denominations there is a common binding paradigm that used to you not you know at least you could be allies with this church if, even if you're not you know going to attend or your doctrine is different there's basic things that you know jesus christ is the is the is the glue that holds everything together mm. you know they believed in a resurrection and the death on the cross and uh, forgiveness for sins and atonement. And, you know, they, most of them, you know, did the, the communion and they understood baptism, whether it was Duncan or sprinkling, they understood the point of the baptism, what it represented. And there, there was, there's common themes that would bind us through the history because we were primarily a Christian nation. Therefore, those paradigms were what governs how our worldview is and because that was a pretty predominant worldview, it unified us in times where, if that didn't exist, unity <laughs> would uh, would just disappear. We've been at each other's throats for most of our history. I mean, you look at the founding fathers, uh, men of God, most of them, or a lot of them, and even mm-hmm. the documents that they wrote very much uh, centered on those principles that you just laid out. So our nation we know is very divided. You just look at the political atmosphere. You look at the political polling. You look at where all the votes go. Uh, you look at the left coast and the uh, big cities, um, the left and right wing extremism. And I just let, I want to be clear here. This this show wants to hear both sides um, and then filter it and kind of let listeners make up their own mind. But it's a very divided country. Some of the ex- extremism is really disturbing. Oh, it is. And but here's here's something I think is lost on many Americans because we tend to just focus on the time we're in and the effects rather than the history of it. Uh, our nation has always been polarized for, mm. for almost all the almost all of our nation from its very birth, it was polarized. And with few events that would disappear for like a bit. But then we would still go back to the polarization. The thing is, is what united us despite this polarization, what what allowed us to still work together? And the founding fathers you mentioned, some of them weren't, some Christians wouldn't call them real Christians because they were like Unitarian. And there were some but atheists, I think, thrown in among the last. There might have been. I, don't, I, mean, I know Thomas Paine, Thomas Paine was accused of that, um, but that was by his political enemies. And I don't. I don't know if, and if they weren't like full blown fundamentalist, as the word may use, they believed in a creator God. They believed 
at a bare minimum, they believed that Christian virtues were beneficial to society and therefore were for the propagating of the Christian religion for that reason alone, even if they themselves we're not going to fully take it seriously. You said that America has been polarized for the longest time possible. Uh, I had a guest on, Craig Shirley, who just released his riveting April 1945, and he's a presidential Mm -hmm. historian. And I asked him about that, and he said, really? And in total reality, this nation, yeah, has been polarized. There's only probably two significant times where the nation really came together. The Second World War, America had felt that devastation. And in the immediate aftermath of Mm 9-11, and I recall to him that you know, I was in America by that time after 9-11, and I recalled the lines outside our local hardware store, people buying American flags. They ran out of supplies. They did. That's right. I was astonished and at the same time delighted. Yes. Um, I, I, I wonder to myself, how long will this last? This nation was incredibly united in the immediate aftermath. And the other thing I noticed, and you might have noticed it too, our churches were packed. Hmm. Everybody was at church the following couple of Sundays. And you could almost feel the tension or, or people were almost trembling with anxiety and fear. Hmm. Yeah, and it's yeah. not that you know the church was taking advantage of their of their anxieties or anything, but it was a very um, there was a great closeness then. The, the nation was in a different place. It was uh, it was kind of surreal because, like you said, it was almost like everyone was proud to be an American. Everything was about the nation. There was a coming together um, drive <laughs> in yeah. every person to to be. We we have to be united against this. And, and like you said, American flags uh, sold out, uh, con- you know, and uh, churches worship. I wasn't one going back to church at the time. I was not that type of person at the time. Uh, but you're right. It, it was, there was a, an, an upswing in it. And, uh, but that, that dissipated, it seemed, it didn't take maybe, what, a year or two. <laughs> we were back uh, at each other's shows. Of course, um, you were in the army, so you might have great insights into this. But that, of course, ultimately led to a lot of wars in the world. And I, my mother-in-law was here in 9-11 visiting. And I remember her comment um, to me was, hey, John, will we go to war? I mean, mm-hmm. I guess it's a very simplistic question, but I had to, it made me think, gosh, this is an elder yeah. lady. She saw what was coming. We you know, let's face it, the nation has been at war over the Middle East. You can debate that back and forth, whether we should have done it, should not have done it. I think big mistakes were made. And the only thing welcome in war, as some philosophers said, is in its ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and we botched up the coming out of Afghanistan. So that's, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. a whole other layer to all of this. Millions and billions were spent on trying to recover from 9-11 and getting our security right, it completely upended, I think, American society. And I think maybe that's partly the roots of our current division, or is it more? War always bring, brings unity, but the truth is, is there's, and they can't, they can't always say this out loud, there's always a group that wants you to lose because they want to get political leverage from it. Mm. And you can, you can feel that further down in the ranks where depending on who's running things or it, you get the feeling that you're not even trying to win. You're just trying to survive and you're waiting to blame somebody. And, and when you can do that, because when you can do that, then you gain these political you know points and leverage that you can use to get your opponent, but who has to pay the expense for it, the, the soldiers on the ground. And, yeah. and that, that was always troubling to me. Um, like when I was in Iraq, the second time during the surge, uh, 2006, 2007, when, when Bush rightfully made the right decision to send more troops in to lock the place down, which honestly should have been done from, from the beginning, instead of letting it fester the way it did. It was the right call. I say that being there, being extended, we are ready to come home. And we are like, no, you're staying. You know, that, that obviously wasn't popular with a lot of people, but it was still the right decision militarily to make. And the whole time we were there, the, the news reporting back home and now the opposition is beginning to, to mouth off more about what's going on in Iraq because they couldn't initially, the euphoria, right? Everybody's for America. If you say something contrary, it looks bad. But now 
that's passed. So they became more vocal in their complaints. And it's, you know, Vietnam, the quagmire, we're getting sucked in. And it's, it's almost like they wanted us to lose. It yeah. was very, it was very frustrating to me, but on the ground, we're seeing results. We're yeah. seeing results. And, and most of the, most of the activity was coming from foreign fighters outside of Iraq. The Iraqis didn't, the Iraqis ended up helping us more while I was there that time into taking out Al Qaeda from Iraq more than just we could. It, I, I credit our successes to them. We armed them. We turned them loose against Al Qaeda. And the next thing you know, it worked. And, and that's what needed to be done. That's another move. Uh, like you said, there, there's some things we bungle. There's lessons that's like we got to relearn it every time. And it's like, surely we've done this before. <laughs> and you're just now figuring this out. But uh, yeah, I mean, even fighting wars, you always have this Unfortunately, this division where some are looking to capitalize on mistakes. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My guest is Phil Sharp. He's host of the podcast Rage of the Age, and he's a pastor in North Carolina with lots of fascinating opinions. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. You referred earlier to the creeping bureaucracy and bungling in the army. Some people would say it's gone very PC in the last couple of years. It would seem that way. Uh, I got it. Like I said, I got out in 2012, so I haven't been in it personally for the past, uh, how long would it be now? 10 years or something. Um, but even as I was getting out, you could tell there was a whole ramping up of, you know, how you could speak and, and, and what you could say and, and constant political lectures we had to start attending. Uh, it was getting really just, <laughs> I'm like, what is this? So the Soviet army? Mm -hmm. You know, appoint your political commissars to every unit. I mean, this is, you know, what is this, right? Um, but I, I mean, I've, by many I've talked to who had still been in the army afterward, had, were explaining to me it was just getting worse and worse to where you're afraid to say anything. So they were clamping down on free speech in that sense. Yeah, which in all technicality, the army can do that. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's only doing it for one, it's only attacking one political view not the other. Mm. Now I can understand if you suppress it all to enforce military discipline, that makes sense. But when you're, when you're clamping down on one, but you're encouraging the other, that's just pure political maneuvering. And that's dangerous and poison to any military force. I can't imagine the way the U S army has headed on social issues goes down very well with social conservatives, the kind of quota system that has got into about women, transgender and all of that stuff. It must be really confusing to people who simply can't fathom that and may actually be repelled by it. Oh, some are repelled. I think most of it is what repels a lot, uh, especially of soldiers, is there are people getting promoted, not because they should be promoted. Yeah. They're just promoted because of, you know, they happen to be of a particular race or a particular gender. And that's yeah. what they want to highlight. Hmm. And they, and they can't fail. They're going to do well. They're going to succeed. Every little thing that's done, they, you know, if you're going to pass that medals, now the trend is, Hey, give it to a woman. You look like you're this, you know, hip progressive commander and, you know, and that's, of course, a political move to say, hey, I'm ready for my star because I'm on I'm this type of guy. Right. Yeah. And, and but then you have everyone else who's doing all the work with them and they don't get recognized at all. <laughs> They're going to get ignored. It breeds dissension. And every, and there's no one's trusting anyone with, with anything because it used to be 
You had to prove to me who you are. I don't care who you are. Now it's from these people are special, make them special. That that seems to be the 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 change in the paradigm. They're not necessarily judged or put in positions based on their actual ability and qualifications, but they check off the box on because they come from maybe this neighborhood, this ethnicity, and so on. Well, that's that's the bonus. See, like again, if if your paper looks the same as somebody else, but they have those social issue bonuses, chances are they're going to be preferred just because of that. Yeah, which is totally contrary to what we should be defending in the first. Place. Yeah. <laughs> but as far it's, as it'd be very interesting to see where this logically goes, because if there was a campaign out there to say, well, you have to have 10% of your rank Christians are in the in the commanding force, would be interesting to see how they adopt to that. We want somebody who's from an evangelical church because they've been getting the bombs rush over the years. And well, that's not going to happen because you know they just don't have the political clout to make that happen. Yeah. And that's what it all comes down to. And at the risk of maybe um, saying this wrong or offending people, and I don't mean to offend anyone, um, I will begin by saying I have I have great friends everywhere in all communities, all backgrounds, Black, Latino, identify different ways. I love them all, and it's not for me to be judging anybody, but I'm always kind of amazed that uh, we have this, in the last couple of years, restive voices on for example, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. And we all want fair shake. Everybody deserves a fair shake. Everybody deserves to be able to get to college if that's what your choice is or get a trade. Nobody should have to suffer unfairly. Nobody should be uh, mocked in the public square. We should have love and respect for everyone, regardless of who they are. I'm doing a kind of like a private study by myself in the last year or two. Anytime I run into somebody on the street, they may have a, you know, a different uh, background to me, or they might be, you know, black American or Latino. And and I observe them in interaction. And I, I just don't see, I don't see what I'm seeing on TV, but some of these extremist commentators, you know, I go to the Home Depot or I go into the coffee. Everybody's getting along really well. Black guy is high-fiving a white guy or somebody who identifies right. something high-fiving. I don't see it. I, I I, feel there's a false sense of reality being constructed by, well, sinister folks perhaps who work within media. Uh, I, well, I'm going to say uh, I agree with you. <laughs> there's, there's, Thank there's you, Philip. There's a sinister <laughs> move to... Because you're you're explaining what what I see and most people see. We we see races getting along. Races are more inner inner married than they have been in yeah, decades. Of course, you, people have friends from all walks of life, and it's like. But then you see the TV, and it's like the entire nation is about to implode because look at this, yeah. right? Again, if they just did their report, well, if they did their reporting, it'd be a boring story, I guess, right? Or or, or it wouldn't be as implicated as, as it is. Maybe your ratings would drop, and that's part of the problem. But you, I do think that's a big part. It's a ratings game, too. Yeah, ratings game. But uh, and with that ratings game is because a lot of the things that we, we had watched, uh, mainly during 2020, with what you're talking about, they were staged. They, the, the, and part, and part of this is because many in the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, come from a classical Marxist type of mindset. In their mindset, they tried to present the image of everyone's just outraged. And, th- and because everyone's outraged, we have to do something. Oh, we have the answer for what needs to be done. <laughs> it just happens to cor- correspond with that. Right. So, but all these events that happen, people are having these protests. And a good number, you know, the term mostly peaceful is kind of disturbing, but people showed up to that just to support the idea that Black Lives Matter, which isn't a problem. I've yet to meet, I have yet to meet, I have yet to run into anybody that I've I've been bumping elbows with who would disagree with me. Black lives do matter. Yeah. Right. They're like, well, of course they do. Right. They just don't approve of, you know, what's going on in the name of that. But so yeah, these people coming together. To, to protest, and it was mainly over the uh, actions of the officer, which everyone was like, that guy needs to go. <laughs> yeah, it didn't matter. It's like, what is he doing? You know, he needs to go to jail. That was... We're talking about the George Floyd. Um, yeah, yeah. We were yeah, all it, united. It was terrible. The nation I agree. was united, left and right, about the guy. 
And then the protest came out. But then they these groups, these cell groups, and this is very left, far left wing oriented. You can see this back all the way into the 1800s. They would go into these these crowds and they would purposely they, there's a science to it. They would guide these groups and, and make things happen to give the impression that everyone's just so outraged that action is needed now. And that's that's the game. That's the psychology of the political moves in which they're making. Amazing analysis. Uh, and you know, to put it in context, what what is the percentage of U.S. population that is Black American? Fourteen percent, I believe. So you you look and look at the numbers. More and more um, are, have now entered the ranks of the middle class, right? So yes, I put yes. that at maybe rough back of the envelope guess. Six seven percent, and then there's another three or four percent are living quite middle class lives or working class lives. So we're talking about a tiny percentage. If there's dissident voices among that community, it's a very tiny percentage. And you can find the same dissident voices in white communities if you look mm-hmm. if you look closely enough. So there's a lot of but fabrication about the whole all these what what happened a year or two ago on the streets i i, I do believe that there was there were bad actors behind some of the violence mm-hmm. and who fueled it oh yeah yeah and, and it was intentional it, it's an actual political strategy to yeah. to give the impression because when people are in a state of anxiety and fear and and there's there's crisis going on you can ask them for more things and more power than they would normally give you and that, that's the whole goal of it is it look how horrible things are. We have to do something. We must take drastic action, which nor, if it was normally discussed in, in our constitutional mindset that Americans usually have, we're like, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when it looks like the world's falling apart, you're more willing to go. Yeah, yeah, we got to do something. And, and that, that was pretty much uh, the play that was made. Uh, you made an interesting point, though, as far as um, dissenting voices. Look, uh uh, I know at least where I'm living in our population here is about uh, almost half and half black, white. And then we have the sizable growing number of uh, Hispanics moved to the area. And, and, and everybody's, there ain't no race war going on here or anything. But, no. but there's many, uh, many friends and some of them are in our congregation that, you know, they look at Black Lives Matter with distrust. Hmm. And, and, and believe it, it or not. Stuff. Yeah, well, it does, but it. And, and we have black Republicans in this area, which the, if you listen to the news, that's impossible. There, a black person could never be a Republican, right? I mean, <laughs> but, it, but, it's, it's, but that's just how it is. It, you, we size everybody up into these groups and say, you're, you're this and this is what you think. And that's not even close to true. We know that on a personal level. But yeah. for some reason, when it's talked about on a grand scale, when you're looking for ratings, you tend to, you know, overlook those things. You grew up in West Virginia, uh, Joe Manchin's um, constituency. Yes, yes. What was that I like? Growing up in West Virginia? Oh, way different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was. Uh, I mean, goodness. I I moved to Florida uh, briefly, or well, twice from West Virginia. My dad had to follow the work, and there ain't much work there in West Virginia. So, uh, so there's two times I I left the state to go live in Florida, and the first time I went to Florida, it to me it was like I literally went to another country. It, it was just I, I mean I stuck out because of my accent. It was like obvious, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not from around there, right? So everybody everybody gave me gave me trouble for my my accent and uh, just. I mean, it was a huge city. Jacksonville at the time is a huge city. And I'm in this school where just like more people than was in the, the town I grew up in. And, and it's just like, whoa. And just the just the way things were done, the way people dressed was different at the time. Yeah. Uh, I had to really, it was a culture. Uh, I was suffering for, I guess, in sociology, they call it a, was it enemy or something? It was, uh, <laughs> I was like, I am out of my element. I don't know what I yeah. But it was. I mean, it was uh, closer ties with people. Uh, your family ties, especially, mattered a lot. People are, still now, people in West Virginia tend to be quite clannish. Hmm. Uh, Close family ties. Family ties, but uh, and then they have a certain set of friends, and it, it's awkward because when they run into people, it's like they've known you their whole life. You could be in a store, and you know, and 
and they'll just talk at you. And next thing you know, it's like they, they act like they've known you their whole life, but you never seen. Them. I mean, they're very friendly, but they tend to just gravitate amongst certain people and say that way. It's kind of yeah. weird how that works. With them. Reminds me of the Irish experience. We came to America and we had our accent and our, I guess, our facial expressions and our traditions and our music. Uh, we worked in the railroads and mm-hmm. dug the tunnels, opened bars, hospitality industry. And we looked for work because there was no work in Ireland. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a great, wonderful, warm, clannish kind of people. Uh, so I can I can relate to that uh, quite a bit. Joe Manchin um, was able to hold up Build Back Better. I held up quite a bit of things. <laughs> <laughs> and and he kind of has to because the, the state, strange, I mean, has turned red over, I don't know, past decade or something. And, and that was that was in the works. When I grew up, I grew up, we were told we had to be Democrats because they represent the poor people and the re- Republicans represent the rich people. And guess which one you are? <laughs> so we were, you know, so <laughs> at the time I was like, yeah, that logic makes sense. But I mean, the, the older I got, and, and I think many who grew up from my time frame upward began to realize that the Democrat party really don't represent us. They, they don't Walking have our feet. They, well, they don't. Yeah. The working guy, they're not really helping the poor. They're, they're targeting certain groups of the poor for votes, but they're not really doing anything for us. They're they're running away businesses, which don't help the poor. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of their they spend more than we want what's spent spent because who pays the taxes? You know, the middle class and the poor end up really paying it. Most of it. Yeah. And we and then just the things that they advocate as far as uh, socially, it's like we don't believe in that stuff. <laughs> you know, what in the world are you all pushing here? And over time, I just woke up and found myself to be a Republican in reality more than I was uh, a Democrat, uh, though. I, I will say that I'm still I'm very frustrated with the Republican Party nowadays anyway, but uh it's what I got compared versus the Democrat Party right now, which is totally went off the tracks. It's not the part because I was told this sort of stuff when I was a younger kid because my grandmother and, and my dad still had memory, fond memories of FDR. Mm. You know, he, he you know, he was the savior of the nation as far as they were concerned. If he said otherwise, then you know, bad on you, right? And you know, he was a Democrat. And that it was in that mindset that, you know, I was raised early on. A lot of us were at that time. It, but it's just something over the years I've just kind of shook off. It's like, this is not the part of FDR. And, and you know, there's, there's a lot more issues that are different. Hey, and when I look back now as a historian, looking back at things, there's things FDR did that I, I see are very, uh, create more harm than good, but he got credit because of, again, the crisis going on. He was given more power than normally people would be willing to part with. Just give us one example. Is it that given more power to people? Was that one of them? He was a, I mean, obviously he believed more. He was not, his predecessors before him are accused in history as being laissez-faire, which is not entirely true. They, they intervened at times too. Mm. He just took intervention of the government to a whole new level, to, like to a whole new level. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's like uh, big, big uh, government, big, expanding yeah, government. yeah. To decide to run everything. Yeah. And we had, uh, I mean, I had a couple guests. Uh, economist on the show at Rage of the Age talking about this, uh, some of the myths of the Great Depression and and come to find out that there's a lot of policies he would institute that actually prolonged the Depression. It's what made it great <laughs> is that that intervention affected yeah. everything else within the economy. I've heard some theories on that too, and yeah. some of them sound pretty credible. They, they do when I think, you know, and of course, again, growing up in our school system, FDR's like kind of like a god, and he saved the country, and that's all you get. That's you don't hear yeah. the opposing thought processes of "Hey, you ruin you ruin the market, you interfere with the economy, you cause a food shortage." I mean, there's all these other things yeah. that are brought up that you don't hear in our schooling. But uh, but that I mean, we have our own time now. We have our own issues now to deal with, and it's like we're we're lost either party. I, I mean. I, I hope the Republican Party gets its act together because I don't believe, I mean, there'll be a third party option if the Republican Party is replaced, not that there'll be a third so party. That's a possibility. But yeah, as a, as a man of faith uh, and a man who believes in God, you would, I think, then tend to 
um, gravitate towards the Republican conservative parties. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all things. Considered. I mean, let's look at the <laughs> social policies of the Democrats. Right, are sort of hostile to faith. Right, some people would argue they're yeah. certainly not pro-life. They're not even. They're not um, like there's a disagreement over something. I think they are. They have become antagonistic to the Christian faith. It's not that the Democrats said are yeah. pro-family with all their social spending. And by gosh, we need some kind of like social security. Is, I, I think it's a great program. Unfortunately, it could go, mm-hmm. could in theory go bankrupt, sadly. But it's that's helped a lot of people in their senior years. I I, I think it's a great program. But um, they say they're pro-family. Um, and then you look at how they're trying to, I guess, in a sense, splinter the unity of the family with some of their ideology and the programs uh, they are promoting. Well, it's because... Now the view of the family is anything you want to create it to be. There, there's no natural family mm. as far as they're concerned anymore. So you can mm. you can construct it or you can just check it. off any box you like. Yeah, hey, this is my family. This is my cousin oh. Bob. You know, but he's not my cousin. He's the neighbor next door, and you know, whatever. We're family now. I mean, it's. I mean, that's it. we pick and choose our families. You have your finger on the pulse of a lot of things. It's clear during this interview. So do you think Trump will, if he returned and put his name on the ballot, he has a good shot? <sighs> is, is that the guy you yeah. want? Is that the guy you want? Well, you know, I'm like most conservatives. We didn't want him initially. <laughs> we have so many people I've talked with and uh, guests on the show. They've all, we've all had the same confession, you know, and he's a big, it's like, at first, we're like, are you kidding me? Who's this guy? Why in the world is he getting traction? Uh, but, you know, we went with them because, hey, Hillary was just not an option, right? And But then we saw what he was doing, and he was getting things. One of my biggest complaints of the Republican Party is, is we never do anything. And when it, the few times we get power, they never do anything. Yeah. They just, they just, they give up, and all of a sudden, they're worried about offending the opposition, who has no no same qualms in offending you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. They'll stick it to you in a heartbeat, but you won't, you won't, you know, go back and, and get what we sent you to do. But here's Trump. He does this. He goes in, he rolls up his sleeves and he starts trying to make things. Out. I'm like, wow, this is kind of refreshing. It's to me, that's the appealing thing of Trump is his mouth messed up. Yeah. Talk unnecessary smack. He sure does. But here's, a, here's something I had to think about. We have a lot of politicians who look good and talk good, but their actions are horrible. Now, this guy's backwards. His, 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 his looks and his, and his speaking is like can put people off, but look what he does. It, it's almost like a reversal. Of course, other politicians hate that. that that's totally not their, how you act as a politician. I think there's a growing momentum in the country for not politics as usual. I don't, I mean, Trump might be, depending on who runs against him and how that pans out, he might get, if he doesn't gain the traction, there's still that attitude, I think, amongst a lot of conservatives that, look, we're not going to settle for people who just get elected and sit there and do nothing anymore. We want something done. Trump showed it could be done. So y'all get to work. Yeah. So he's a doer. He, he puts up these promises and he says he delivers. Um, on regulation, uh, overseas spending, on taxes, on cleaning up our communities, on crime, and so on and so forth. Look at the crowds he still gets at rallies. Yeah, I'm not saying he 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 doesn't have a shot. It's just uh, the American people we have a tendency of <laughs> losing momentum. You know, in the euphoria of the time, Trump seemed like let's go. You know, but yeah. that that got lost you know, four years later. So, I mean, it, it might come up again in, in, uh, in the midterms keep carrying on. Uh, I, th- I think he mentioned this before. If the Republicans don't do well in the midterms, he's not going to bother running in the actual election. Why does he want to fight that again? I mean, you saw what happened. The minute the Democrats came in, not only did they block everything, they were trying to make him a criminal for the rest of his time in office, which was absolutely just, a bad precedent. Yeah. Well, he wants to sign off on a good note and he may just 
put his finger in the wind and say, now nah, this mm. is going against me. So I guess that's a good point. He'll see what happens in the midterms and uh, he'll take it from there. You know? I mean, part of it too will be how he's accommodated or not by media. He's a media magnet, and I, you can never <laughs> underestimate that. And that's, he would, he would that's one of his strengths and weaknesses. <laughs> and the ratings would skyrocket once right. Trump is on TV, and the media knows that. They yes. created Donald Trump, and yet they gave out about him. And, and that's um, that's sort of what he has going for him, like I was saying, because they hate him, but they like the ratings. <laughs> so... <laughs> Do we, you know, we want to be rid of them, but then we don't, you know, <laughs> so it's, <laughs> and he, uh, he just, he tears his, a lot of what he is saying is true. I, I believe the media is just abs- has a lot of problems with it. Big media has a lot of problems with it, uh, but him attacking them constantly made a bitter enemy that had a lot of leverage against him. And it was not a, to me, a wise move yeah. politically to make this single conglomerate that has basically access to everybody's ear in the country, your enemy. Yeah. That was just not a wise move at the time. A good point. So we'll, we'll see where all that heads. You channel a lot of your energies and your thoughts into your podcast. And at first, I wasn't sure what to make of the title. And I think you've written about that yourself, Rage of the Age. I yes. was figuring <laughs> that Phil Sharp was some kind of a crazy guy screaming into the microphone yeah, but it's not maybe about earlier. that at all right <laughs> no raise the age is i don't know it's something in my head like we used to say i guess when i was younger if i could put it that way right you know that's the rage of the age you know like everybody's raging about it it's the it's the coolest thing there is right now and everybody's all about it you know that's that's what i meant by the the, the phrase what is the rage of the age? What is everybody talking about? What's important? What's the zeitgeist of the times? Is you know, it's just to say zeitgeist times would not be a cool sounding podcast, probably, because it'd be like, well, what's that, right? <laughs> rage of the age sounds more catchy. I figured, you know, look, look what's going on now. And and I just want to present, you know, I have conservatives, but I also have had progressives and left wing on the show to just discuss things that are going on that people see as relevant now. And I want to get to the heart of the paradigm. And you're a curious person. How can people reach you, your website, any addresses, Twitter, all of those good handles? The webpage is rageoftheage.com. Quite simple. I, I consider myself lucky to get it that easy, right? Uh, <laughs> <rageoftheage>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a, a Facebook page that's Rage of the Age okay. uh, that you can find pretty easily. Uh, Twitter handles um, Rage of the Age now. Oh God, Rage of the Age everywhere. Yeah, hey, it's it it, it all lined <laughs> it up with the naming. I'm like, this is this is uh, I gotta walk in this. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, if you need to email me, it's a editor at rageoftheage.com. Very simple. That's just fantastic. Yeah, Chris Sharp. It's been my pleasure to have you on my show. We'll do this again. Thank you. Take care, and we'll see where the world is in the coming months. Thank you, John. Appreciate. It. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.